to love you all. So I have been, along with my wife, we have been down in San Diego helping get launched chapel services down where we're going to plant next summer. Pleased to say that it went well. God bless the work. We were able to build valuable relationships in the community there with chaplains, with plenty of people in the community. So praise God for that. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. It was probably not as eventful as mine. So Christmas Eve, we found out that Ruby, my little daughter, is, uh, is allergic to eggs. So we spent five hours in the emergency room. She's fine, but we, we missed the steak dinner. But she was so cute. She was making friends with the nurses and all that. So the very next morning, my wife and I wake up with a huge cold. And so, you know, the silver, the silver lining and all that is that we just got to drink cold medicine and just watch Christmas movies the whole day. Anyways, nice and rested and just ready to be back with you guys here this morning. So, we ended our sermon series this last Christmas Eve talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And in particular, looking at Jesus who models and exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit for us to follow after. Now this Sunday, I kind of have a, an awkward week that I'm covering where we just ended a sermon series and then next week we're starting a new sermon series. So Trace texted me a little while back. He's like, hey, preach whatever you want. So kind of been thinking and praying through. So usually through December, we cover the Advent, Jesus's first coming, where we focus on Jesus who entered into his own creation. He sought and saved the lost and was our substitute on the cross. But we rarely, I feel, lift our eyes away from the first advent onto the second advent, Jesus' second coming, and living in light of that future and hope of Jesus returning and setting up his reign. So that's what we're going to cover this morning. I realize when I say a future and a hope, what comes to probably most of our minds is Jeremiah 29.11. I'm going to guess it's Half of our favorite Bible verse right there. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God was writing to Prophet Jeremiah to encourage the exiles at that time. I'm going to go on a limb here and guess that that verse is probably tattooed on a few of you on your wrist somewhere. And it's the verse that's most likely to appear on a Christian coffee mug. And rightly so. It is a great verse. Yet my concern with hearing many Christians about their views on God's plans for them, for a future and a hope, is that it mostly includes good health or a promotion or well-behaved kids that God will not give them more than they can handle. See, often our views of a future and a hope is limited to our lives here on earth. And yet the future and the hope we have in Christ is so much greater than God's promise to the exiled Israelites and so much greater than their future and the hope we imagine for this life alone. Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles over to Revelation. Yes, you heard me right. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. So Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. It is uh, written in a literary genre called apocalyptic literature. 
So you'll see lots of symbolism and vivid imagery that is used to represent literal truths throughout the book. Now what I've heard about Revelation, it's the book of the Bible that the church most wants to hear preached. It's also the book of the Bible that pastors least want to preach through. And here's why. We have four elders here. If all four elders were to come up here to the front and break down Revelation, we'd probably come to five different interpretations. Luckily for us, there are some crystal clear themes that would encourage the original audience to which the book was intended for. And they have, Revelation has certainly encouraged Christians for almost 2,000 years since. So the crystal claims crystal clear themes throughout the book is that despite evil going from bad to worse and the reality of the persecution of the saints, God is in control over everything. Jesus will return. He will set up his reign. And he, yes, will set up his reign over all the world. So we find ourselves in our text this morning where Jesus has just returned. He is setting up his reign Satan, the great enemy, has been utterly crushed, and we see the finished work of Jesus' judgment and salvation, and it is a glorious picture for what awaits all of us who are in Christ this morning. So with that, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. Read with me, church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, no, be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we come to you asking that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word with meekness, where we would surrender to your word as our authority in life. Pray that you would, Lord, change our perspective through your word. Would you correct our false hopes and would you stir us on to live for you all the more in the present because of the great future and hope we have in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Going back to verse 1, we see throughout the book of Revelation that John, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 
is receiving these revelations and he's commanded to write them down. So up until this point, up to Revelation 21, the book has mostly been chaos. But after Christ's return, his final defeat of Satan, Revelation radically shifts in this future hope we see in Revelation 21 and 22. We see the result of Christ setting up his reign. So we see in verse 1, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And why is that the case? Because the old earth that we are living in right now, which is affected by sin and awaits redemption, is, has passed away at this point in life. Has passed away. Now scholars differ whether over this earth is going to be burned up or whether it's simply going to be burned up and renewed. But that's not the point. What we need to know is that at this point in the future where Jesus has returned, he set up his reign, the old which is affected by sin, the earth we're living in now, will pass away and the new is coming and shall be perfect. New heavens and new earth which is coming and shall be perfect. We see that John, after he describes the new cosmos in verse 1, he then sets out to introduce the bride of Christ in verse 2. We see in verse 2 this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And we know throughout the New Testament, another word for the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is the redeemed church. Church, let's slow down here and let's, let's think through all that we're seeing here in the text. We are gazing upon our future this morning in verse 2. All of us who have put our faith in Christ are called the bride of Christ. And this right here is our future wedding ceremony. Now for, for most of us who are, are married here, we all remember our wedding day, hopefully like it was yesterday. I remember Rochelle and her bridesmaids, they woke up super early in the morning. They got to church and spent hours and hours and hours preparing, putting makeup on, putting the dresses on, all that stuff while myself and my groomsmen, we like rolled out of bed at like 9 and got to the church, put on our tuxes and like fixed our hair and then went right to the photos. It takes a long time to prepare that bride for her wedding day. But what was the result? The, the, the music is crescendoing up and the doors fly open and there your bride is coming with her father and, and, the, and the groom is like trying his best to not cry, right? We all remember that. That was just me? Okay. <laughs> Anyways, let that serve as an illustration of how Jesus is preparing, molding, and purifying us, the church, for our future wedding day. This leads us to our first truth this morning in light of our future hope. For our lives, Jesus is committed most to what we are becoming. So at the point of faith in Christ, where we've turned from our sin and put our faith in Christ for the first time, we have been declared holy. We are pure without sin. And in the rest of our lives, the Holy Spirit is working in us to become actually holy, where our attitudes, our actions are all conformed to God's will. So in other words, at the point of faith, we are given, I'll say like an alien holiness, holiness that is not our own. It's Christ's Holiness that is, not, that is based on faith. And the process ensues after that for us to gradually become more Christ-like. And here is the end result. Jesus returns for his prepared, adorned, and purified bride. So here's 
Here's an implication, just kind of thinking through this truth. Let's, let's kind of be honest here. Life can be brutally hard. And if we were honest here, I think a lot of us would want to change a lot of things about our lives right now. What we're going through. Maybe you're going through a hard marriage. Maybe you're going through discouraging health issues. Maybe you're going through troubling family relationships or a tough job that you just can't seem to get out of. Know this, whatever you're going through, our good and loving Heavenly Father has allowed all of these things to happen in your life with the intention to prepare you and adorn you into the pure and holy bride you will be one day. He uses all of these circumstances for our holiness. He uses all these things that we would be dependent on Him like never before. And it is often in the pits of life where God is most at work in preparing and adorning us for what we will become. Praise God. Jesus cares most about our holiness. Now, if you're going through any of that, be encouraged with this verse, Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's move on to verse 3. We're reading verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So this verse, what we're seeing, this reality here in verse 3, is a grand fulfillment of a theme that runs throughout the whole course of Scripture. What we're seeing in verse 3, this was a reality in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. That God dwelled with Adam and Eve. They were His people. They were His image bearers. They were to be fruitful and multiply so that God could be worshipped throughout the ends of the earth. We see in Genesis 3 that the fall happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's rule over them, and humanity plunged into rebellion as a result. So the rest of the story, from Genesis 3, the very beginning, on to the very end, Revelation 21, can be read as gradual fulfillments of God restoring the realities of the Garden of Eden back to humanity. Thinking of the narrative as like one long story of exiles from the garden returning back to their homeland, a better garden that we read in verse 3. Remember what banished Adam and Eve from the garden was their sin, and God cannot dwell with sin. Yet all of Scripture is the story of God solving this issue of man's sin so that God could dwell with us once again and that we could be His God. Now, it would take me too long to go over the whole story, but ultimately Jesus is the solution to solve the riddle for how a holy God can once again dwell with a sinful people. Jesus' work on the cross took on all of our sin. In turn, Christ gave us, transferred us His righteousness, His holiness. He declared us right in God's eyes. When we placed our faith in Him, 
I'm sorry, the light is just hitting my notes, so you're going to have to bear with me. And in returning to set up his reign over all the earth, the realities of Eden are brought to fruition where a holy God can intimately dwell with a purified and holy people, and we will enjoy him forever. After all that, we can certainly pull out many truths from this verse alone, but what I want us to focus on, particularly in this, in this present context of our lives, is that We are exiles awaiting our true home. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you, he's talking to the church, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we are exiles where Jesus, who is the greater Moses, will lead us into a greater promised land, which we read here in verse 3. This is true. Why do so many of us, myself included, live like it's not? Now, in this area, it's so easy to be conformed by the world's views and values. We hear this push constantly from media and from TV that we are to make as much money as we can in this life, that we are to climb as as high on life's ladder as we can. We are to, to make as happy and as well as pleasurable life as we can on this earth. And I know that we're, we're perhaps not embracing those values to the extreme, but there are subtle ways which we, when we fail to embrace that this is not our real home. Now church, imagine with me, okay, I'm not condoning reading books where someone goes to heaven and then comes back and writes a book about it and gets rich. But I'm just, I'm just saying that let's imagine, what if we were to experience heaven. What we're reading in verse 3 and throughout this section for like five seconds. We were to see God. We were to see His new creation. We were to, to, to take it all and we see all that glory. And then we were to come back into this life. Wouldn't our whole outlook on life be radically transformed? I imagine that we probably wouldn't fear anything especially death. I imagine that things that are important to us right now, material possessions, healthy 401ks, that, that promotion that we really want, suddenly it's, it's not as important as we thought it once was in this life. I think to myself, if I already experienced that, and I would realize that there is no such thing as too great of a sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I think we would embrace and live this out, this truth from my favorite missionary, C.T. Studd. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Church, don't conform to the lie. This is not our true home. What awaits us in Christ is so much greater than we can ever imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's move on to verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things 
knew. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So as we talked about in the previous truth, the storyline of Scripture covers how God solves the riddle of how he will once again dwell with a sinful people. And what we need to know about the fall, Revelation 3, it was so much more dramatic and intense than we want to imagine. Not only did the fall bring on physical death for all, but it brought on spiritual death. We are dead in our sin. It brought alienation from God, separation from it, and brought alienation from each other. The sin also affected all of creation, as it says in Romans 8.21. So much more intense than we want to believe. And yet right after the fall, we get this promise that one day the curse will be reversed. Genesis 3.15 says, this is God speaking to Eve and the serpent who is Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning of the story, we get this promise that one shall arise from Eve who will crush the serpent, crush Satan himself and the curse on humanity. And this was ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Christ. The cross dealt a serious death blow to the enemy, to Satan. Yeah, we know that the source of evil and death itself will be totally crushed one day upon Jesus' return. Romans 16, verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Revelation 20, verse 10, the previous chapter of this, pictures this end defeat. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's after all this that we once again come back to verses 4 and 5. What we read here, this is a picture of what life will be like when the enemy and sin itself will be forever defeated. This leads us to our next truth. Jesus will reverse the curse. So in crushing Satan himself and dying for the sins of the church, this is the result. A life that will no longer be affected by sin for all of eternity. Let's, let's think through this. In life to come, no longer will we have to deal with a tragic loss of a loved one. In the life to come, no longer will we have to, to, to hear news of a debilitating illness. In the life to come, no longer will we have to go through crippling despair and discouragement in this life. No longer, no longer, no longer, because Jesus will reverse the curse and make all things new. Let's move on to verse 6. He said to me, it is done. So Jesus has returned. He has set up his reign. He has ended the curse of sin and death. And he goes on to say who he is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So God is the creator of all. He's sustainer of all. And he is the one who will, is the great finisher of all of history. You look at the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, God is the author. He is the main character and he is the one to receive glory for all of eternity. 
All this to say this truth. All of history is about God, not you. We may be all gone to a children's play or see one on TV where you have this little kid that's playing this tree on the side of the stage. He has like one line. But when his one line comes in, he like flaunts it. He makes sure that the whole crowd is going to remember his one line. And it's, it's cute. We think, oh man, that, that kid thinks the whole play is centered around his one line. If you were at kids, if you were at kids games this summer, you would see that that was, that was pretty much me. Um, yet, many of us are that tree on the side of the stage that want the whole play to center on their one line in life. Church, this is God's story, but it's, it's so hard for us, myself included, to get around from believing that the whole world somehow revolves around us. But here's the thing. There's something both devastating and absolutely freeing when we embrace that life is all about God, not us. It's devastating to think that we are just a blip in history. That we are not as significant as we think we are. Our jobs are not as significant. We won't have that great of a legacy as we, we, we probably want to. The reality is for most of us here, 50 years after we die, no one is, is going to remember who we were. I'm just being honest here. You may have a cool little factoid about your great-great-great-granddaughter looking you up on Ancestry.com, but that's, that's about it. This is a tough truth to hear, but don't miss the freeing aspect of this truth. We embrace that we are not as significant in man's eyes as we want to believe. This frees us to live so that Jesus alone would be significant in our lives. Now, how do we put this into practice? Revelation 4 pictures the throne room of God. We see all these creatures worshiping God. We see the 24 elders throwing their, their crowns before God, and they're just beholding who Jesus is. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 11. The 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. It's just a picture of white-hot worship right there. And we see that worship is the solution to the problem of self. This is what I mean by this. If we are focusing and beholding and giving worship to God and who He is and praising Him for His works, we are no longer focused on ourselves. We are amazed at God's glory. And we get outside of ourselves and picture God. You are no longer concerned about yourself. You're able to serve and value others above yourself. And you're now able to choose to be a servant of all as Jesus commands his disciples. So you're no longer, you're able to no longer aspire to be great in man's eyes, but you will become great in God's eyes as a servant to others. In the light of eternity, isn't that the only real thing that matters? 
that we would be great in God's eyes? Let's pick up in the second half, verse 6. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This verse is referring back to verses that, that depict the future messianic reign. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus in his ministry says John's, in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We see in this verse the final fulfillment here, Revelation. That those who come to Jesus in need of a Savior, they recognize their own thirst, will receive the free gift of salvation and satisfaction in him. And then verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So those who conquer is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. See in Revelation 5, where Jesus conquered, he was the slain lamb of God who conquered through suffering, through his death. And the rest of the book serves as an encouragement that those who conquer are the ones who endure suffering, who persevere in the faith, even to the point of death in Christ's name. Conquerors persevere to the end. We see the result of conquering in verse 7, that God will be our Father and we will be His adopted sons and daughters. To summarize these verses, here are the promises we read. For those who recognize their thirst in life, Jesus promises to satisfy us in Him for all of eternity. And to those who persevere to the end, intimacy with God as our Father will be our reward. So let me compress this into one truth. Eternal satisfaction and intimacy in God awaits us through Christ. Church, hear God saying this to us in Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Remember the previous context of being satisfied. Why do we go after all of these things to meet those needs in which only God can meet? Forget who it was, but I think it was Augustine who said our, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Church, Christ offers to quench our every thirst, meet our every need, be our greatest source of joy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Through Christ's work on your behalf and the cross and the Holy Spirit's work in you to enable you to persevere, we, have, we will have eternal unbroken intimacy with the Father as adopted sons and daughters. This is good news Considering this, that we have all sinned and rebelled against God in every which way. Yet God still has chosen us in Christ. He still pursues us and He will bring us into this reality that we read here for all of eternity. This is good news. These are glorious truths that we have 
we read here from Scripture, yet not every truth in Scripture is always good news. That's where we find ourselves in verse 8. Let's read verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with a fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So in contrast with the glorious promises to those who thirst and who conquer in Jesus' name, John gives a, a vivid picture of the second death which awaits those who have renounced their faith, those who have not stayed faithful to the end, and those who have given themselves over to all sorts of sin. Judgment will come. And you may be thinking to yourself as you're reading verse 8, well, I'm, I'm not grouped in with any of those lists right there. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a, I'm not a sexually immoral. I'm not a liar. That's not the point here. That's not what John is trying to do. He's not making a list just for the worst people here. He's setting this up in contrast to confront us with a choice. You're either recognize your need of a Savior and place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, or you don't. There is no middle ground. You're either in the camp of verses 6 and 7, or you're in the group with verse 8. Let me summarize this truth. This last truth we see in our text, judgment is coming for those who reject Jesus. And I don't, don't say that easily. Um, the judgment is one of the most painful truths that we see in all of Scripture. And yet it is, it is a truth, nonetheless, that we must proclaim. person who by far talked about the realities and truth of an eternal hell, most in the Bible, was Jesus himself. I beg you, if you have not turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, know that you're headed toward a future found in verse 8. The good news here is that it does not have to be that way. The good news I want to proclaim to you is that judgment has come for all those who surrender their lives to Christ. Let's put up Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is no mistake. We have all sinned before God. In verse 24, we are declared righteous in God's sight through faith in Christ. And here's why in verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. So God placed Jesus as our substitute and His wrath was poured out on Him. He took the judgment that was supposed to be for us and our sin. And we see in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. So God was both just and justifier. Think of a human judge. Would you call a human judge a good judge if you were constantly letting guilty people go? It's the same concept with God. God would no longer be called a fair, a just judge if you were allowing the guilty to go free. 
And we know throughout the whole Bible that we are all guilty. We've all fallen short of God's plan. We've all turned away. And yet the good news is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that God could pour out his wrath. He could be a fair judge and punish Jesus, our sins on Jesus' behalf. And he could also be the justifier, the one who declares us righteous, pounds that gibble, and declares us innocent because of what Christ has done. That is the gospel. All this to say, I beg you, please recognize your need for a Savior if you have not done so. See and turn to your solution in Christ by placing your trust in Him alone. And before we head into communion this morning, I want to close with this one last exhortation. Church, we have an amazing future and a hope in Christ that awaits us. I hope that was clear in these verses. And I want to urge you to let this future be like kindling in your heart to light a fire in you to live all the more for Jesus in the present. Can't believe it, but this next May, it will be 10 years since I was a young, scared recruit at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Yes, I am telling a boot camp story behind the pulpit. <laughs> and uh, I remember within two or three weeks of me getting there, uh, I started creating this list of all the things that I was going to do once I graduated and I got out of there. It's going to go all the restaurants, do all the things that I wanted to do. And, and I remember when I had watch, when I had all the crazy stuff that made us do, I would just open that up and look at it and just visualize what was awaiting me. And that would give me strength to get through all those trials, all those things that went through because constantly my focus was on the future. The church, in the same way, let our future hope found here in the Word encourage us to press on in the faith during the present. You are overwhelmed with your own sin. Remember that Jesus has taken your judgment, will form you into His pure and beautiful bride where you will enjoy Him forever. When you are crippled by life's trials, and tragedies. Remember that there will come a day when God will wipe away every tear from your eyes and make all things new. When you are tempted to give up on your faith or just take your foot off the gas, remember that the reality of our future hope will be so much greater than what you can imagine. I promise you it will all be worth it. Let our future fuel our present. Church, would you pray with me? Oh God, how we so fail to lift our eyes from the temporal, to lift our eyes up from what we see happening in everyday life, to set our eyes on eternity, to set our eyes on our true future home that awaits us because of what you have done for us, Christ Jesus. Lord, as Jonathan Edwards said, would you stamp eternity in our eyes. That it would radically change our perspective here in this life as we are sojourners and exiles. 
God, would it create a vigilance in us to pursue you all the more as our treasure? And God, would our hope in you as we are beholding and focusing on you enable us to run our race with endurance, knowing, Lord, that it is you who is the author and sustainer and finisher finisher of our faith. <coughs> oh God, correct our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.